This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hey everyone, welcome to Last Drinks. I'm your host, Maz Compton, and we are at the business end of the year. Christmas is around the corner. And I thought that this would be a really perfect opportunity to have a little look back on the last few months of conversations and inspiring people that I've spoken to on this podcast. So this is a bit of a recap. Um, In this first recap episode, you're going to hear from, I don't want to say some of my favorite conversations because in their own unique way, each conversation has been my favorite for a different reason because I've, I've learned so much, I've shared so much, and I feel really grateful that I sort of have this really wonderful back catalog of sobriety stories to share with people. So in this recap episode, you're going to hear bits and pieces from some of the chats that I've had over the last few months, including from Laura Willoughby, who is the founder of Club Soda in the UK, which is, I would say, the biggest mindful drinking community and movement in the United Kingdom. Laura is actually about to open the first alcohol-free bottle shop in London. Um, She has a crowdfunding page ready to go. They have premises Um, leased and they're fitting the shop out. So that is really exciting. And I love all of the work that she's doing in the mindful drinking movement. You're also going to hear from Bex Weller, who's the author of A Happier Hour, and she founded Sexy Sobriety. And um, a couple of friends of mine too, including my beautiful friend Libby Monkhouse, who I reconnected with through this podcast. And she was so gracious and generous in sharing her sobriety story with me and also Danny Riggs-Smith who I met working at a radio station 20 years ago and we've sort of worked in and out of different media businesses and kind of always run into each other throughout our careers and again reconnected in this season of life through sobriety which is really cool. Osha Ginsberg who you would know from or maybe you know him from Channel V days or Um, the original Australian Idol series. More recently, you would have seen him on The Bachelor and The Masked Singer. He's also a really incredible dude and a very talented podcaster. Osha shared his very real attitudes towards alcohol and how he kind of came into the fold of alcohol at a really young age. Um, His story was so raw and so real. And I'm going to kick this episode off with a bit of my conversation with the wonderful Lisa Messenger. Lisa Messenger is one of my career idols. Um, I look to her as a mentor. She's a really amazing industry disruptor is how I would describe her. She's the CEO of Collective Hub of Messenger Group. And um, she's a very talented writer and just a, an all-around excellent human being who has been sober for 17 years. And when I spoke to Lisa, we got 
in really deep, really fast into how she arrived at the decision 17 years ago to have her last drink. My life was pretty much an absolute transmash in every area of my life, bar none. <laughs> so I was using alcohol as a crutch and a way to self-sabotage. And I've done many, many years of many, many, many therapies. And we can talk about that since. I didn't realize it at the time. And what that resulted in was <clears throat> I was in a marriage um with a guy that I had nothing in common with. I hadn't spoken to my mom or my dad or my sister for three years. Um, I was spending most of my time with suicidal thoughts. Um, what else? You know, I was really coming home every night, mostly um, kind of on the bottom of the shower floor, just vomiting and, you know, waking up doing the same thing. And, just uh, and and it was also the unpredictability of it. So sometimes I would go out and have a couple of drinks. Drinks other nights I would go out and binge and you know end up an absolute car smash. And then I used to just think, oh, I need to um, buy a florist because I need to just send flowers every day. You know, loose lips sink ships. Oh my gosh, what did I say again last night? And so I was living a lot. Um, and for anyone who's been through AA, you know, guilt, fear, shame, remorse are things that we hear a lot. And I was definitely living with all of that. And my last drink occurred because I actually, and I don't talk about this often, um, because I believe it's a part of my story. It's not my story. Um, but for you, I will. Um, I drove on the um, the 8th of November 2004 to the Gap in Sydney um, with the intention, I think, um, to jump off and, you know, uh, suicide. So that was a very big wake-up call and I was very fortunate that I ran out of alcohol on that night. Um, I called my grandfather, my poor grandfather, who was nearly 90 at the time and was my best friend and the most amazing advocate and somehow... I didn't. And the next day I um, I got some help and I haven't looked back. So for 17 and a half years, I've not had a drop of alcohol in any way, shape or form. And I do a whole lot of rituals and very specific disciplines around that. Um, I mean, it's not even part of my life anymore, but I still do those rituals every single day. Osher Ginsberg is a mate. He's somebody who I've worked with and known of over the years, and he is so shiny and successful on television. And I had no idea that he had had such a hectic past with alcohol. So when we spoke on the podcast, Osha was so refreshingly real and raw and honest about how he started drinking, how it became problematic, what he lost through his drinking behavior and what he has been able to build and create in his sobriety. He has a really clear opinion on alcohol and what it is. And that's what he shared with me in this part of our conversation. But what it was, Maz, is I'd always, you know, I've been a jumpy kid. I've de dealt with anxiety and, you know, my, I've been open about what, what's been going on in my brain. And alcohol was this magical thing that made this, um, you know, this kind of fear and 
and discomfort of being around people and, you know, being in new situations, it just all kind of go away. And I was like, ah, oh, this is it. Ah, oh, I can be with people I don't know yet. Ah. Oh. However, getting to that, ah, oh. at first it was half a sip of beer that got me there. But alcohol is one of these drugs, and it is a drug. Alcohol is one of these drugs that the dosage needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger to achieve the same effect. And alcohol... Initially, it wasn't my problem. Alcohol was my solution. Alcohol was the thing that I used to get me to a place of feeling normal, feeling feeling accepted, feeling that I could be around people I didn't know, feeling that I could engage with people even that I did know. Um, Unfortunately for me, the dosage that I needed of this drug became so huge that uh, it became unsustainable and the damage that it was doing to my body and I could see how much it was going. I have a, I have a real problem with alcohol, the drug, um, in that in our community of Australia. And there's a line uh, that you hear <laughs> when I moved to Los Angeles in 2005. I lived there for 10 years. Um, you don't realize you've got a drinking problem until you leave Australia. Our cultural relationship with alcohol is completely fucking dysfunctional. And the amount of mm. trauma and pain and violence and death that this drug causes in our community, if it were discovered tomorrow, there's no way we would allow alcohol to be legal. It is a drug. Like, people go on and on about, we've got to have sniffer dogs at festivals because what if these kids overdose? You can walk into a fucking bottle shop and buy enough gin to kill you today. And it's perfectly legal. And no one gives a shit. And I'm not okay with that. All right? I'm not okay with that. this drug, this incredibly destructive drug to our community. Now, bear in mind, I'm someone who's on the wrong end of this drug. Not everyone reacts the way I do. But I reckon there's enough people in our community that right. react badly to alcohol that we should have a good fucking look at it. Because you look at it in ER, like pre-COVID, you look at it in an emergency room on a Saturday night, What's the common denominator in there, guys? All right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not it's not fucking Panadol. <laughs> it's alcohol. Yeah, it's not it's not knitting needle injuries. No, nah, it? it's not. Oh no, we've just got banning avocados because people keep cutting their hands when they're trying to get the seed out. No. Rebecca Beck's Weller has such a wonderful last drink story, and on this podcast. She told me it's the first time she's really told the story of her last drink. She's spoken a lot about sobriety. She's founded Sexy Sobriety. She's the author of A Happier Hour. But she really didn't drill down into her her exact last drink until our conversation. And after Bex Weller had her last drink and told her love that she was not going to drink for a period of time, she then was reminded that she had a hen's party the next day. And so, of course, I just had to know if she went. Did you go to the hen's party? Yes. <laughs> so you're two days into sobriety and then you put yourself smack bang into a cocktail of disaster. Uh, so you're, you're a braver woman than I am. Um, but how so did you tell your friends? Like, how did you navigate that first social engagement without a drink in your hand? I was hella awkward. <laughs> I yeah, was so I you awkward. <laughs> you know, do you know what I found? Like, when because I didn't, I kept doing social stuff because of my job. 
but I found that first month that I stopped drinking, I just didn't know what to do with my hands. Yes. I was like, I don't know. What do people do with them? I felt like there's this really funny movie called Talladega Nights where Will Ferrell is being interviewed and like with a reporter and he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. And I felt like, I'm like, I'm the living, I'm this in living colour right now. I feel so weird. No one probably picked up on it, but in my head I was just like, what are you doing with your hands? Stop doing that with your hands. Exactly. Should I put them in my pockets? Should I put them on my hips? Like, should I put one hand on my face? Like, what do I do? Eat the hors d'oeuvres. Eat the hors d'oeuvres. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Shove things in your mouth. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, I totally get the hella orphan vibes. But, you know, did did you tell friends there that, how how does that all play out? Yeah. And this was, you know, this was a big group that I had been socializing with for years. And we, I was always the biggest drinker. I was always the first one at the bar. I was the social organizer. My friends used to call me the clipboard queen because I was oh, like, wow. right, we're going to do this. And now we're going to go to this event. And we're going to do that. And, you know, like I was always the one bringing everyone together. Great. So to let go of that identity as well, I was like, who the hell would I be? And so I got to this party, I drove myself, which was, you know, a miracle in itself. I never drove to anything. And I I got there and um, a friend asked as soon as I arrived, you know, would you like a drink? And I was like, I'll get it. And just awkwardly bolted over to where the drinks were so that I could just get an orange juice and just like hold that. And then I came back and I said to to one of my friends said, are you driving? And I said, yeah, I am. But I think also maybe I'll take a break from drinking. And she was like, oh, what, just for a month or something? And another friend came over and and, she, and another friend said, or, or forever. And I thought the way that they said it made me think as well, like, have they been talking about me? Like, oh, have they wow. been thinking like it's about time she, she cleaned up her act? Because, yeah. you know, I was 38 at the time. So like everyone else had started to mature a little bit and I was still going crazy at all these With things. With your clipboard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Clipboards in the air, off we go. She's still got the clipboard, guys. Exactly. (laughs) She's in the late 30s. She's still got it. It's there. But that's interesting that your friend said, is it for a month or for forever? Because the difference between just mentally going something for a month versus it can't just be either one month or forever. Like it can't be that extreme. But when you are on one side of sobriety, it can be that intense. Like it's either for one month or it's just for the rest of your life and there's no anything else, you know. So that's just an interesting observation on how other people perceive your own journey and and sobriety in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I, another friend came when she came over, she said, oh, um, you know, she said, oh, forever. And I said, no, I think like three months or something. And they were like, oh, OK. And the way that they were so casual about it, you know, there was just two parts of me where I was like, is are they casual about it? Because three months of not drinking is no big deal to them. It's easy. 
or because they're like, finally, this has been coming for a long time. So, of mm. course, like, you know, you have all this paranoia in early sobriety as well because you're doing things differently for the first time and you're like, has everyone, you know, what has everyone been thinking of me? And the funny thing is, don't you think this is so weird, Maz, that we spend so long trying to hide how much we're drinking yep. only to then when we stop drinking, we're trying to hide that we're not drinking, you know, like yeah. it's so such a strange thing. I didn't think I could do it myself. And so the fact that now I write about it, I mentor others, I coach others, like that blows my mind because it definitely wasn't the trajectory I was on. Like I was a cost engineer in a global energy company before I left there to become a health coach, which was on a whim. And then, you know, suddenly I snowballed into doing all of this sobriety work. So like that blows my mind. Like how did I get onto this path? Um, but also, you know, like really, I think the relationships and stuff, like when I was a teenager, before I started drinking, I was so shy and so timid and unsure of myself and and really a, a real introvert as well. Not that those things go hand in hand, but, you know, learning to, to like and love myself through sobriety has been so amazing because I don't think I ever got there before I started drinking. Mm-hmm. And then also um, to re-embrace because when I was drinking, I would pre-game. So I would drink before I would go to every event so yeah. that I would have the courage to go in the door. At the time, I thought I was just being festive and having fun. Now I realize, oh, I was actually a bit socially anxious and awkward. And, uh, you know, that introvert in me was like, I need something to help me get there. And now I I really embrace that introverted side of me where I'm like, okay, you know, I love now, whereas before it was always more is more, like when it came to drinks or when it came to friendship groups, if I want more people to hang out with, because then if some go home, I've still got more people at the bar, you know, <laughs> but now I really love like one-on-ones, like, because these sort of kind of deep conversations, it just I, it feeds my soul, you know, that might sound corny, but it really like lifts me up. And so I find that the way I connect with people is very different where I love doing a lot of one-on-one dates like we go for smoothie dates or walks around the park or you know doing different activities and that kind of blows my mind as well that was such a big adjustment of what I thought my adult identity was. Danielle Riggs-Smith is a superwoman corporate powerhouse sales executive. She is at the top of her game in her corporate life. She has climbed that career ladder so succinctly and so well. And she currently works at TikTok. But I met Danny 20 years ago. And when we first started in radio, cutting our chops in different sections of the radio station, me at the time as a rookie junior producer and her at the time as a junior sales coordinator, We reminisced about Friday afternoons and what would happen at the radio station with a certain thing we like to call Polly the Grog Trolley. And, you know, I remember doing that. I was in charge of Polly the the Grog Trolley at one point, but I remember helping myself to a few drinks along the way. So it was almost like I'd go past finance and go, all right, I'll have a little drink with you all. But then it got to the point where I took a corner a little incorrectly and and Polly (laughs) fell. (laughs) 
Oh, no. Well, we fell over. So it was not okay. The grog trolley fell and uh, glasses smashed everywhere. But that was standard, right? And we used to get yes. alcohol delivered when uh, clients would do sampling or giveaways and all that kind of stuff. So it just became part of upbringing in the industry, I think. And, you know, that almost got to the point where, you know, you, your life progresses. And I've been in the industry for 20 years now, which is absolutely insane. I mean, clearly I don't look it, but you know. Um, I mean, I was going to yeah. say three years max. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Oh, the lines, the hair, it's going grey. But, you know, it got to the point where I had children. So I have a six and eight-year-old now. And, you know, my husband wow. loved it. Yeah. I know. Do you remember, Jack, yes. when you came into the studio with you and Dan, Dan and you were um, on air? Tiny little, yeah. tiny little tot, and he jumped up on the studio chair, yes. and we all took a photo. And it was, and he was like, he would have been not even a toddler, not even a year old. Like I know. So he's eight now. I know what mind blowing, but you know, interesting. So I, I know we'll talk about that as well. But the influence of the children seeing us um, so alert, so active never hung over. I mean, all these things that they're going to remember from their childhood because we made a conscious decision um, to stop drinking. And it all actually came about uh, because my husband, um, he started to do an F45 challenge. And I know you you love the F45 challenges. Uh, but well, was... I'm F45's favourite daughter. so I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I'm like this, you'll love this. But it was the 1st of February 2019. And yeah. we, he just was like, do you know what? I'm going to do this, this 28 day challenge because it was February yeah. and it involves no alcohol. And we used to sit on the front of our, um, at the front of our house in the sunshine on a Saturday afternoon and have a bottle of wine, like just enjoy two glasses each. Sometimes we'd go to two bottles because yeah. it was a Saturday and, you know, we had children, so we weren't going to be going out you know, drinking and dinner and all that stuff like we used to with friends. So it was almost yeah. like this was our moment together. And mm. it became a little bit too often in the sense that we wouldn't drink heavily through the week. However, we'd love a Saturday afternoon, you know, and just love that mm. moment together. And it got to the point where, yeah, we were like, let's just shift focus and let's do this challenge. And because he did this non-alcohol, I'm like, well, that's incredibly boring for me. Why on earth would I... <laughs> Why would I want to sit and have a glass of wine by myself, by myself, you know? Laura Willoughby is a mindful drinking activist and she founded Club Soda, which is the biggest mindful drinking movement in the United Kingdom. She has helped tens of thousands of people understand their drinking behaviour and choose sobriety and mindful drinking and make that a part of their practice. And so I was curious when I interviewed Laura Willoughby to know what the inspiration behind starting Club Soda was. The course that you did that you've paid money for that you are hoping is going to um, give you some tools in your toolkit on how to manage your relationship with alcohol did not live up to the expectation that you had. Is that true? Uh, yes, absolutely. But because um, I luckily by booking, I had it had made me do a number of good things, set a date, talk to friends, put a day aside, find someone to give up with all of that sort of stuff. So, of course, you can you can point to it, go, hey, Laura, that was a success. 
So what a lot of people might not know here is that I've got a background in campaigning and local government. I was elected to local government when I was 23 and I've stood for parliament several times. I knew where all the drug and alcohol services were in my local area and I didn't want to go to them. But what I do know is what makes a good service. And so I went on this course and there were people in the room who were dependent drinkers in the room and and don't underestimate that it's really dangerous to suddenly stop drinking if your body is now dependent on alcohol. It's actually far more dangerous than any other drug. And these people were in a room with me, and, you know, who I, I don't know actually whether I was dependent or not. Nobody asked. And there was no support. There was no wraparound support. There was no assessing people's needs. There was a guy next to me who'd been told by his doctor that he would die if he didn't give up drinking, but he hadn't been given any advice on how to stop safely. He was drinking at dangerous levels. And so whilst I sat in the room and somebody basically read a book to me, which is what happened, um, I at least began to do what was really important, which is, you know, an important motivator for me. I began to get very angry on everybody else's behalf. And so I came out of that room and went, well, I've now got something to do. I need to sort out, you know, the fact that there is a completely unregulated space here around changing drinking and that anybody can set up and charge lots of money and put people at risk and danger. And don't underestimate the power of that, everybody, because when you, I was drinking too much because I ended up in a job that, um, that I hated, that didn't, they no one cared if I turned up, which is really, really terrible for somebody who, you know, wants validation from all sorts of people in the world and wants to feel useful. Oh, don't we all? Like validation is sort of our lifeblood. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've begun to crawl out of that by getting a secondment into something far more interesting. But then when I came out of that that course, I came out with a mission as well. And I'm brilliant when I've got a mission. Um, and so... Uh, it, it, you know, um, of course, you know, so what happened was, as I say, a lot of good behavior changed at Neeks. I began to see that beyond this secondment that I had done, that there were other things that I was good at and I could already see a problem that I could solve. So yeah. again, you know, I wasn't focusing on the not drinking. I got very focused on what it is that needed changing and, and what my life could be if I took some responsibility for doing that. So again, Things that keep you motivated in the longer term are about living the life that you want to lead, and that's really important. Belle Robertson and I really connected in our conversation on the podcast, and we now host regular Ask Us Anything episodes. Belle is a sobriety coach, but she does all of her coaching, a lot of her coaching online, and it's a daily online thing. And Belle, I think, has created this invisible coach who helps with the daily struggle that people may get to in early sobriety. And she she calls them these micro adjustments. Like, what can we micro adjust today to, to keep us on the sobriety path? So when we caught up, I really wanted to know how... She founded this really beautiful community that has helped so many people in a different way and whether or not that was intentional or it kind of happened by accident. For me, it felt like the, honestly, the only place in my life where I could actually tell the truth. 
And what I didn't realize with that was that that would be helpful to anybody else because I can assure you in the beginning, I wasn't trying to help anybody and I couldn't have, and I would have had nothing to offer. I was trying to save myself. Yeah. And I wrote daily for 60 days. I made a deal with myself. I would write every day, no matter what, even if I thought it was stupid. Mm. And then I wrote really for the better part of a year. And then I started daily emailing people as well. But then people started to email me. And so I didn't, it's not like every day I had to have something genius to say. After a while, I could share what uh, somebody else sure. had to say that was genius. And it didn't, you know, it didn't all get generated by me. Your story is really unique, Belle, in that it's like the opposite of social media. Your sobriety tool is the opposite of what a lot of people do. So a lot of people are on social media and they spruik this certain life and certain language about their life that is not real. It's just the facade. It's the highlights. It's the special occasions. It's the fabulousness. And deep down there could be, you know, something further from the truth. And what you've done is you've just taken all of that away, all of the expectation that your life is fancy, free and fabulous, and you've just been real with yourself. And you're like, I'm just going to be honest and keep it low-key and anonymous and have no pressure, no expectation. And it's in those moments that you truly can see yourself because you don't have to keep up appearances because you're not comparing your sobriety to anybody else's. You're just doing it. So you become accountable to your own truth, which is the highest level of accountability. And I, I find that such an amazing thing that you discovered. Yeah. And I would say that I discovered it by accident though. It like, it's, yeah. it's not like I set out to write to discover myself and it's not like I set out to do anything. I knew I wasn't going to make it. And I knew that if I couldn't make it two months, uh, not continuous months, but two separate months in a year where I tried to quit for a month to prove I didn't have a problem, I knew that if I couldn't make it the second time, then it meant I had a problem. Mm. And so I knew that I was stuck having to open myself up to accountability or, like you said, just even expressing to myself what my issues were. And I had no idea no zero idea that that was useful to anybody else. Um, and very humbling then to have the unvarnished truth in a, in a forum where you're not holding back. And I have a lot of very harsh language. I'm a big swearer. I love that, by the way. Your blogs are so refreshing. Belle, oh my God, there's no sugarcoating. You're just calling bullshit for bullshit and I love it. <laughs> And I just decided that if I couldn't be me, I wasn't going to yeah. do it, right? And so it meant that if people were turned off by my language, then okay, well, I can't help it. Um, but I wasn't going to change for you because I wasn't doing this for you. I was doing this for me. And it, I didn't know then that I was modeling things about boundaries or about determination. or I didn't know any of that until somebody would feed it back to me. So when you have readers... They will email you and say, that thing you said helped me because, and I'd be like, oh shit, are you kidding? <laughs> That's helpful to you? When I talk through how I made out, made the decision and what the thought process was, like I'm trying to work it out for myself. I didn't know, I didn't really know about modeling mental health things. I mean, it's not my job. It's not my career. I'm not, I don't have a degree in psychology and I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I had to rely on my readers to tell me what was helpful. Mm. 
and the, of course, the more readers you get, the more helpful they are, the more they tell you what you're doing, then the more of that, more of that good thing you can do because someone else can articulate. Like you just articulated that I figured it out mm. for me, which then modeled, you know, which then showed other people. The last time I caught up with my gorgeous friend Libby, it was a few years ago and we had dinner in Sydney and she told me that she'd met a boy and he lived in Adelaide and she was going to move to Adelaide for love. And it turns out that was a wonderful decision because she married that boy. And a couple of years into their marriage, he decided to stop drinking and almost challenged her to stop as well. And Libby was really honest with me in our conversation and said her sobriety is probably the thing that saved their marriage. Not that their marriage necessarily needed saving at the time, but that if she had have kept drinking the way she was drinking and behaving the way she was behaving, then it may not have worked out so well. So it was so lovely to reconnect and to hear her story about what happened after that night we shared ice cream with olive oil. Yeah, that's a real thing. Ice cream and olive oil for dessert at a fancy restaurant in Sydney. So yeah, we were drinking when we got together and then um, I had a friend come over from Sydney and then we had a bit of a, wasn't even terribly wild night, but you know, it was a night out on the town and um the next day I was like incredibly hungover. As I sort of got to that point of stopping drinking, I was getting these really bad hangovers, like two or three glasses of wine and just like nasty hangovers. And my friend actually said to me, oh gosh, I'd actually just prefer you didn't drink and then we could at least hang out the next day. Oh, wow. Um, and I was like, oh, <laughs> sorry. <okay." laughs> Yeah, I was really like, oh, okay, I'll rally. We can go out. We can do stuff. Um, But then it was a week later, my husband Ben said to me, I think we should quit drinking for a month. And so I was like, well, I'm very competitive. I take that bet. And off we went for a month of no drinking. And here we are three and a half years later. I love this because it's similar to me in that... Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to this recap episode. Like I said, I feel like it's, you know, the the end of the year is near, 2022 is winding up and I thought I have been doing this podcast now for a good few months and it was a really good time to just pause and reflect. And I think that that is also a really big key in sobriety. Sobriety offers you the time and the space to pause and reflect. And it's been really wonderful going back through some of the conversations that I've had. And and I also just want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of my guests so far on Last Drinks. The aim of this podcast is to normalize non-drinkers and normalize not drinking. And these conversations are making it more normal. There are more and more people discovering sobriety. There are more and more people being curious about sobriety and, you know, the engagement and the feedback that I'm getting on the conversations and these podcast episodes is so encouraging. So I want to create as I've said before, like a really welcoming, inclusive 
and safe space for everybody to explore their sobriety and to hear how others have done that for themselves. So that's it from me this week. If you love this podcast, feel free to give it a five-star rating. I will absolutely be continuing this podcast in 2023. I will have another recap episode next week. And on the 1st of January, 2023, I will be sharing my last drinks story, which this is going to sound probably a bit strange, but I'm actually a bit nervous about doing because I haven't really told the story before. To be honest, I've definitely spoken to a lot of people about their last drink, um, but the 1st of January 2015 will be my anniversary of my sobriety, um, eight years of sobriety, and I'm so glad. I'm so grateful for that. So, uh, yeah, a good couple of weeks of episodes ahead and then um, and more of the same and more inspiration and encouragement and more excellent guests in the new year. Catch you next week. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod.